0: This is Tending Seeds, a podcast about my adventures in homesteading and herbalism. I'm Sarah Schuster, and I'll be your host. Thanks for being here today. Hi friends. Can you believe it's June already? I definitely can't. Things are growing like mad, and we are finally hitting some of that summer heat here on the farm. There's also so much goodness out there, if you're doing any foraging at least. The elderflowers are in bloom, which is one of my favorite things in the whole world, My business is named Fox and Elder because I love this plant so incredibly much. From now until later in the summer when those flowers turn to elderberries, I will just be out there picking my heart out while also of course leaving plenty for others, including our pollinators. Mimosa is also coming into flower, which has this super cool looking pink bloom that looks like something out of a Dr. Seuss book. It's really cute. I also have lots of herbs coming off the farm already, and we just made our first batch of pesto from all this basil it's going to be a great summer. For today's main topic, I'm letting someone else do the talking about a plant they are super passionate about. Dandelion provided our guest audio today to discuss an incredible perennial, the pawpaw. Dan is a forager, herbalist, and musician who is on a mission to help individuals and communities recognize nature as a continual and abundant provider of nourishment, medicine, food, and sacred connection and to help reconnect the perception that nature is the very source of our sustenance as humans. He is often found traveling around the country in his forage mobile, teaching classes and leading plant walks wherever he goes. I first came across Dan's work last year through Instagram, and he was talking very passionately about his love for pawpaw trees and wanting to increase the biodiversity and availability of this phenomenal fruit tree. We connected and started talking, and he was kind enough to offer to let me share this audio with my listeners. I was really impressed also by his offers to send seeds to folks if they would just cover shipping for him. You'll hear him mention that today, and I sure hope he'll be doing something similar again during pawpaw season this year. I'll share his contact info at the end of the episode so you can reach out to him if you're interested in getting seeds from him later on in the year if he does so again. I will add a small note here about the audio quality being a bit different. As I mentioned, Dan is usually on the road, and so this was recorded on his phone during one of his cross-country trips. I've edited out as much background noise as possible and tried to amplify Dan's words. It's not perfect, but I still think it's worth sharing and listening to, and I hope you'll get as much out of it as I did. Enjoy. Hey friends, it's
1: Dan going. So today I wanted to just run down the pawpaw project and talk about the things I've been learning as I've been traveling and talking to people about Pawpaw. And I'm really excited about Pawpaw. I think that we need to make an effort, uh, bring back the Pawpaw effort, and just grow them in every park and start taking over ecology as our responsibility, again, from the ground. And so um, yesterday, actually, oddly enough, me and Craig went to this park and we were about to get in the car, the van, and leave, and uh, go to another spot. And this lady was in her car, and she goes, like that. And I'm like, okay, what she need? Maybe she needs some help, um, something like that. So she gets out of the car, and she's like, are you a dandelion? And I saw she had a shirt uh, with the park system on it. And so I was kind of like, uh, well, who are you? Um... And so I said yes. I wasn't afraid. I said yes. And she actually was a Facebook friend, a uh, follower, on the Return to Nature page. And she's a mushroom collector. And so we all went for a walk yesterday uh, with Plant Cincinnati, who just joined the live. And we found tons of mushrooms. So I'll be uh, sharing all that with you all. But it was really cool to hang out with her. And uh, she knew some pawpaw spots. She told me of the best spots. And uh, it was very insightful to talk with her. So the pawpaw situation is... I'm on tour. I'm a little late for the pawpaws, you know, if I would have planned this a month earlier. um, But I didn't want to leave Cherry Valley plot so soon. So I was trying to wrap up all the plant harvesting at the farm there and then get on the road and start collecting pawpaws. So what I had is several friends along the way have saved uh, seed and I'm getting all kinds of seed from all over the country uh, as much as I can. And there's a reason that that's really important for proliferating pawpaws. And that's all based on the fact of genetic diversity. So we basically have natural selection and artificial selection. And so natural selection is how ecology determines the traits of which genetics can spread, where artificial selection is that the person, the human the mind, the intellect, the desire, uh, the cultural uh, upbringing, the cultural boundaries about what is wild and what is nature, Uh, The epistemology of a human determines what seeds are saved. And so we have artificial selection going crazy in the farm world. And as a result, look at all the bug and pesticide problems. Look at how the kale is degraded, etc. So we have this problem where we're breeding plants using a system of thinking, which is actually causing them to get disease and weaken. Um, It's kind of like inbreeding, right? Taking a cutting is more like inbreeding. Um, it's actually exactly the same genetic structure. Nothing has changed. There's been no sexual reproduction. There's no diversity in the genes of those seeds. So, like, the cannabis industry is full-on uh, breeding cuttings from two species. So, all of them are two species, right? Cannabis sativa and can- Cannabis Indica. There's maybe a third species with uh, the idea of the hemp plant. But So, you have this issue where for the last, somehow, indigenous people were seed whispering they were predicting through visionary capacity on which plants would be resilient which plants would uh, be be stronger and we lost that tradition somewhere along the way and instead we started getting greedy and our desire our gluttony took over and so our desires for seed saving became size sweetness right Um, And even those qualities, right? Oh, I want a bigger fruit that's sweeter. Those quality decisions uh, broke the genetic resilience. It didn't feed the immune system of the seeds that we're building, uh, the seed bank that we're building. It fueled uh, superficial projections on what a plant should look like um, and taste like. And usually taste is less bitter and more sweet. And so one of the things that that does is, of course, it breaks the fiber to sugar ratio and increases the likelihood of diabetes. So with blueberries, for example, the bigger they are and the less fiber they have, the fiber is actually what dilutes and causes the sugar to absorb more slower. So the less fiber, the more sugar, the more chance of uh, your, your blood glucose levels going higher and higher. Um, hello, Mercury Maiden. So when we have natural selection, what it is is that biology, ecology determines the traits based on survival of the fittest. And there's pros and cons, to in that terminology. Of course, it leads to exploitive capitalism. It leads to social Darwinism. It leads to uh, you know feeding into this man has dominion over the earth kind of paradigm, the patriarchy, the nonsense, all like that. So when we have natural selection, Gaia, biology, ecology is choosing which seeds thrive and always pushing them, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them past their limits, pushing them past their boundaries, pushing them to evolve and mutate and suck up nutrition and get better sunlight and uh, learn to symbiotize with mushrooms so that it can get more moisture, more water from when it rains. Um, Developing million-year-old relationships with microbes so that they can synthesize vitamins as a polyculture together under the soil. All that's happening, right, in nature, and it's not necessarily happening in agriculture, Uh, especially if you're tilling the land, you're turning all those bacteria to the sun, the sun puts and kills the bacteria after generation after generation, plus the rocks in the soil, right, which are usually removed in agriculture, are pills. They're billion-year-old, multivitamin pills. A rock is a composition of minerals and the the bacteria and the mycelium and the plants are in a symbiotic relationship under the ground, connected to those rocks, and the plant sequesters sugar from light and brings that sugar down into its rootlets and it drips that sugar out and the bacteria then eat that and they synthesize acids, and those acids then break the rocks down and then they are species and that's how kale gets its minerals etc so in the wild there's more genetic resilience there's more um, ability and need to adapt and change where um, if you're top watering a plant like a kale plant it's not growing roots it's not needing that symbiotic relationship as much and then of course the kale you buy in the grocery store is like 60 days 60 days old so it's never going to see that plant is never going to actually go to seed. They're, they're getting seed from seed distributors who grow kale just for seeds. Um, so they're not engaging in this biological push that used to happen. The pawpaws are. And right now, what we have are I believe there are two species in North America there's Asimina triloba, um, and then there's um, dwarf pawpaw, which I don't remember the species, but that grows in the south. And so the interesting thing is that that means there's two habitat regions in North America to start proliferating and pushing the boundaries of pawpaw. So if we take the diverse seeds that are on on the earth, they are varieties of two species. So let's just leave dwarf pawpaw aside and get to um, a trilobus. So. That's in the Anomaceae, right, or the custard family, the custard apple family. So if you've had a Glanabana or a Cherimoya, they are also um, in that same family. And this is the last of the fruits of North America that contains fat. It's very hard to find fat in um, North America. And so when I started foraging and getting into understanding the need of fats when you're actually living off the land or walking six hours a day or Spending a lot of energy, you need fat from wild food sources if you're going to survive there. And it all comes down to where did the pawpaw go? Because that would have been a Native American staple um, that was able to provide fat instead of animals providing fat. Um, And I think, obviously, it's a mixture of all-in. When you're really living off the land, you're in, in a position of needing... Wide, diverse fats, wide, diverse calorie sources, everything like that. But so the pawpaw basically dropped off in a lot of ways. And it's very hard to tell why. Um, This one lady had this theory that the deer eat them, the saplings. But I don't think that's true. Um, And so I think that pawpaws are deer resistant. That's a really important thing. Um, What happened? Well, one of the theories i just sort of thought about is that mastodons used to eat those pawpaws and poop them out and that was the best compost pile ever if the fermented of the seeds the germination would occur and then pawpaws make these huge stands they're um one huge map um you know of rhizomes. so that's one species uh, one variety actually of one species so you can go into a pawpaw forest and look at a stand of thirty to fifty, and it actually could be one uh, variety, one stand of the same genetic uh, species. And in order to fruit, supposedly you need two. Two. So if you're finding fruit, one of the things is it might be two different stands of diverse seed. Um, the question is, when the pawpaw drops, does it have? in the seeds, is that all genetically diverse, each seed, or is it a carbon copy, um, like taking a cutting, right? So that's still in question, something I'm talking to people about trying to figure out. Um, so then after the mastodons died out, what could have happened is that native people took it upon themselves to plant them everywhere, because they valued them so much, that this was part of the, the Native American food forest, and all the, you know, I have this vision of an indigenous life here, all over the world, was that you'd literally wake up and garden and farm nature. And you'd play, you'd pretend, you'd play pretend that you were caretaking here. And that's how he came out of it. And so, of course, like when Columbus and everyone came, they thought that it was just that way. That was their mentality because they had a Judeo-Christian upbringing saying that God created the earth and it was just that way and man has dominion over the earth and nature makes food and you can just exploit that and that's totally fine. So when the native people died out, I think the pop-off started dying out as well because it relied on interacting for so long that now it's wondering, where its farmers are. So it's wondering where its farmers are. And so what we have is this internal contradiction in our society where we're not actually in the ecosystem. We are viewing the ecosystem as a frozen projection of something that does itself. Well, I believe that cultural model is wrong. And our goal here is to start caretaking the earth again and to show... That there's a value and a need and bring people back to um, the wild, but also just the idea that food grows out of the ground. Wherever you stop putting concrete, there's food. And you could always choose from there. If you like the mint in that area, you can pick out the grass. If you like the grass in that area, you can pick out the mint. You can make monocultures all day. cultures to build. And that's where the, the concepts of permaculture are the more sane cultural paradigm than uh, nature just makes itself and we're supposed to shop at the grocery store. That's not working out so well, I don't, I don't think. So what we can do is, is kind of my goal and my vision and what the paw has told me to do is try to get these seeds diversified all over the country and wherever there are stands, If you can take a seed from somewhere else, whether that's a 100 miles away um, or whatever, if it proliferates, then that genetic sharing, right? When they're sharing genetically, they're pollinated by flies, right? So the flies come and they'll actually pollinate the fruits. And that's how you get pawpaws. So flies are associated with pawpaws. And I've heard stories of putting rotten meat on the pawpaws to increase uh, production of pawpaw seeds. <laughs> so that's a fun thing. Um, so this is, a, this, is a, this is a blessing of the fly instead of of the bee. And that's an important thing too. And so you have um, the fact that every time we diversify these pawpaw seeds, we're giving them the genetic incentive to continue to push, push, push on that evolution so that they can then proliferate themselves in the ecosystem that we live in. And everybody can then eat pawpaws and stop importing so much coconut oil and do so much stuff like that. Um, (laughs) Danny pawpaw seed is uh, is I'm happy with. So when I'm collecting, um, I'll start with these seeds. Came from a friend uh, in New Jersey that I met at Cherry Valley Co-op, and um, she calls herself Mrs. Pawpaw Seed. And like, I met the lady who calls herself Mrs. Pawpaw Seed, uh, through Alec at Cherry Valley Co-op, and she actually digs up pawpaw saplings and gets the seeds and plants them everywhere. And I've also been doing that in New Jersey. I know about six or seven stands where every pawpaw seed I collect in the wild areas in New Jersey, um, I spread them all over. And I've been at that for about five or six years now. And I go back to some of those stands. And of course, they're too young. Uh, I think it takes about eight years to fruit, but they will be there for the future. And of course, this this mantra, when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? When's the second best time right now? And pawpaws are safe. So here's a cool thing about pawpaws. They're supposed to be here. And so if you're planting them in a state park, With a park ranger seeing you, they'll say, That's great, that's awesome, there's no problem. You're not planning invasives, blah blah blah. You're actually doing labor, free labor for the park system. Um, and that may be an incentive that we can push on to open up the dialogue of what to do with invasive plants in the meantime, and instead of pulling them out and putting them in garbage bags and throwing them in a landfill. Perhaps we can then localize the local medicine production and localize and get off the big pharma and all the stuff that all the people in actual towns want. If you ask them, ask the park rangers. So do you like pharmaceuticals? Do you like the way the medical industry treats you? Do you trust your doctor? They'll likely say no, you know. And so this may be um, a way into having that dialogue between caretaking the wild and even, you know, harvesting garlic mustard. Uh, as an agricultural practice, right? Imagine if you decide that you're going to wildcraft garlic mustard for your local supermarket or health food store or farm stand, right? Or, in the old way, in the old days, you'd have, like, your cart, and you just walk down the street and say, hey, I got all this garlic mustard and ginseng and whatever it was at the time. Now we don't have that capacity because the, the FDA... And the way that business is structured it makes it impossible for someone to just have a vegetable stand. They'd have to pay $20 million in testing and analysis and all this nonsense. So one of the ways in we have is that a, a triloba is supposed to be here. It's a wonderful, amazing fruit. And if we overgrow the system, if we don't let... So what's been happening is... Pawpaw is unable to be shipped all over the country and the world because it has a very thin skin and it's a very soft fruit when it's ripe. So they've been trying to figure out how to breed pawpaws. And this is where we go into artificial selection so that it can have thicker skins. And some of the varieties that you'll get, the Mitchell variety of this, are somebody took a wild pawpaw and then started cultivating it for those traits like size, flesh, taste, uh you know, because agriculture now is based on the ethics of size equals more money, so bigger is not necessarily more nutrient-dense. So the dandelions you're getting in the grocery store that are this big aren't necessarily more nutrient-dense than the small ones you find in the wild, they're just full of the water, right? Because they've been bred that way, they've been bred to be obese and giant, uh, because it's only a bunch of dandelions that cost three bucks. So... They haven't been able to kind of crack the code on Pawpaw, and that gives us a key in to jump in there and start planting them around before that can even happen so that it can never be sort of commercialized and could be a free local food that gets people into nature, out in nature, looking for them, helping to caretake them. It gives a certain level of like, wow, we have a responsibility here with nature to make food come out of it. Um, So... If you're interested, oh, let me get back. I lost track of the the Mrs. Pawpaw seed in New Jersey. We, she came over like the last day that I was there, and I didn't even know she was coming. And I had been taking her pawpaws, and uh, I put them in pots in the greenhouse, so I spread them out to give them room to grow and everything. And so we had about 50 pawpaws at Cherry Valley Co-op in the greenhouse, and she gave most of the seeds for that. And so she came back and we had a discussion and we just got super into every little nitty gritty detail of pawpaw and then we got to the point where she helped me understand. What I had learned is when you take pawpaw seeds, put them in a wet paper towel, put them in a plastic bag, keep them in the refrigerator, and wait until spring or something, I don't even know what the point of doing that is. Maybe you'll understand once I get there. Um, So... That's some you know I tried that, and you get mold, and then my friend Jared from Wild Ridge Plants, who's also in New Jersey, was like, "Put them in olive oil, put some olive oil in there, uh so it'll be antifungal and stop the mold and that was just kind of a mess and a pain, and so Mrs. Papasse from New Jersey told me that she saved them in jars of water, and i uh, I thought, Eureka! that's so sensible, and I would never do that again um for long-term storage. I am doing that technique for shipping. So, you know, I sent out about 20 uh, packets of pawpaw seeds. I'm doing 10 each. And uh, basically it costs about $10 to ship them. And then anything above that, you can offer your donation so that I can keep doing this and keep sharing and keep learning these stories and bringing these stories to you. That's it, you know? Um, So these are from fur wild pawpaw stands in New Jersey. And I've added as I've gone, Um, uh, pawpaw from different parts of the country. And so that's helping to diversify the seed bank. And so when you're getting that, you're getting a pile of diversity and that's going to help the pawpaws in the long run. So if you are interested, send me a message um, and we can figure out how to spread the pawpaws around. They're full of fat. They have fat. So What the range is of pawpaw, so people are saying, oh, can I grow them in California? Not unless you have special conditions. It's too dry there. You can't grow them in the desert southwest or uh, California. I don't know how far up the coast uh, they can go. So that's a question that we have. What about Washington, Oregon? Does anybody know if there's pawpaws out there? And a bunch of people keep asking me in Canada. And I just, affirmed today, with a friend, I posted that on my story. Uh, We just got into talking about pawpaws, and she's definitely found them, I believe, in Ontario, Canada. So um, we do know they're in Michigan, and wild Healing, I believe her name is, just was mentioning how she has found a pawpaw. And and so there's this, like, northern pawpaw range where the variety would be beneficial uh, for colder climates. New Jersey gets really cold, but Ohio uh, and Indiana, there's tons of pawpaws. It's also called the Indiana banana. But... The rain, that those would not be as cold tolerant as the ones in Michigan. So, oh, there you are, high wild, wild pine healing. Um, in in Michigan, if we can start pushing those up into Canada to the degree that they're native to that area, that's something we have to do research on. Uh, we can start diversifying them even in Canada. So they don't really grow in desert climate. Um, but they then have this other species, dwarf pawpaw, where um, um, so this dwarf pawpaw also grows in the south and so the same diversification of the genome of the pawpaw can be happening with dwarf pawpaw in the south. It grows in Florida. Um I think it's Alabama um free state forager Joseph mentioned that I think he's in Alabama and they grew in Alabama, so there's a different uh, different species in the south, which can also be diversified, and these are kind of the northern pawpaw, which can be spread all over their, their frost tolerance. So when you get pawpaws, when you get the seeds, what you want to do, I think, is just go out and plant them in the deciduous forest, they're like downward slopes towards water, and uh, you know, that means no evergreens, stuff like that, and then I think that's the best bet a lot of people want to save them and plant them in the spring. I don't even know why, because if you think of what happens, the pawpaw drops and a deer steps on it or something, or native people used to put them in the ground, or you will now start remembering one seed is all it takes (laughs) uh, to grow a forest of pawpaw for the future generations so they can live off the land again. And so, um, with that pawpaw... Diversity, you can increase them all over. And so, what I like to do is I'll just take the seeds and plant them about four to six feet apart and just, you know, put a stick in the ground, put about an inch or two inch hole, drop a pawpaw paw in, and cover it up. So, it's really easy. Oh, wild boohaw, what's up? There's so much pawpaw paw in Nashville, but not a whole lot of fruit. You're bringing up such a good point, and I think I was talking to uh, someone else about this this morning. I think what's happening is people have been doing their due diligence, and even park systems are starting to grow pawpaws. I see a lot of young pawpaws out there, but they're too young to fruit. And so I think we have a wave of pawpaws coming in the future, and this effort can be increased and continued. I think what what I find is like 80% of the pawpaws that I find aren't old enough to actually go to fruit. Um, so I think it needs to be about eight years and so everybody's kind of all in on growing the pawpaw, and what you're seeing, I think, is young pawpaws uh, in the making of mommy and daddy pawpaws, and what I find is a tree about that big around um, will be big enough to start producing pawpaws. Uh, Wild Buddha says, also, I feel like they're in the under- understory, not getting enough sun. Actually, that's exactly what they are. They're an understory. It's it's a we are so used to the woods being canopy and plants and bushes. We don't have that habitat because it's been completely destroyed. We don't have the middle canopy. And that's pawpaws. They're supposed to be in that middle range, you know, 15 to 20 feet up. And they like mottled sun. They don't like full sun. So horticulturalists are trying to force them to go in full sun. But what I've heard about that is... That actually the pawpaws can proliferate so much on that tree, it can actually snap the tree off because it's too much sun. I do know that if you grow pawpaws, uh, I know I'm skipping around. So if you grow the pawpaw um, in a pot, then if you put it in the sun, it will totally die. It needs at least four years of shade. So we want, um, Wild Pine Healing says, yes, I've only found a few pawpaws amongst the pretty black pawpaw forest. They're young, and they're coming. Our children are going to be paw-paw connoisseurs. Um, And so you plant them in the ground. Um, That's the easiest way to do it. If you don't want to plant them in the ground right now, you can keep them in a jar in water in your refrigerator because they need to go through a frost. And that's, again, why I think it's really important uh, to just plant them in the ground now because what they're going to do is get cold stratified. So that means over the winter, the temps drop to a certain level the ground freezes. That does something to awaken the seed that's part of the seed's fertility cycle. When it feels that cold weather, chemical changes start happening in the seed and then it starts to get ready for spring and then when the water comes, the rains in the spring, that activates the seed to start germinating then. So if you don't freeze pawpaw, they won't germinate. Um, So if you just plant them in the spring, you leave them uh, in a jar like this, they won't germinate unless they go through cold stratification. So everybody out there, who's getting them, um, either put them in your fridge in water until the spring, I don't know why you would, you could do that, or I guess to figure out where you want to plant them, or um, make sure that they don't dry out. So if the pawpaw seeds dry out, they are jewelry, they're amazing jewelry, and everybody should start making pawpaw jewelry, bead necklaces, whatever you can do, Um, macramé with pawpaw, just drill a hole through them and they're beautiful. Earrings, uh, anything like that, but they have to stay moist if they're going to stay. Um, future Cora, what's up? I'm 10 years in with my papa in New Jersey and still no fruit, but the flowers are beautiful. Well, here's another thing. Do you have multiple trees? Do those multiple trees need to be different varieties of seed in order to produce fruit? So this is where I don't know the answers to that, so I think diversify, diversify, diversify. The more varied seeds that we get going, the more they're going to produce fruit. Um, I think that a lot of people grow one pawpaw, you're not going to get uh, uh, fruit from just one pawpaw. You need at least two, right? I don't know if that means two plants. Like, if you took the fruit and you planted two seeds in that, would that produce fruit? Um, I think so. I heard yes. Or it needs to be different varieties from different places. Um, That seems complicated. I don't think that's true, but that's the big question. So it may be just that you need to diversify the seeds there. Um, So grow that stand and grow another one. Get some seeds from somewhere. I've got them. Um, And then just grow a couple more. And it's like incentive, incentive. Maybe the pawpaws are growing us. (laughs) And so just, uh, you know, try to diversify the pawpaws. Um, Does anybody else have any questions about pawpaw? As I mentioned, if you're interested in getting some and selling packets of ten. Uh, basically, pay for the shipping and add any donation you like, and I'll send them out to you uh, as soon as they can. I sent out about 20 packages so far, that, so that's 20 people who are caretaking and caring about the fact that pawpaws should be everywhere for free because that's the way nature made nature. Um you required two, one died, the other started to spread. Cool. So you're getting now a stand of one tree, which is going to possibly be genetically infertile. I think you need two plants to produce their own stands and then those cross-pollinate with each other. So you may need another tree. Um, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. But again, on um, the wild dash to learn everything I can about pawpaws, um, then talking to everyone about them, finding their habitat, seeing everything, and trying to preserve this tradition. Um, this is the story of this country. This is the story of Turtle Island. This is the story of the transition of Turtle Island into America and the food sources we chose to use. And um, this one is a revival, and I believe out of it is going to come a lot of reconciliation and healing with our uh, the genocide that happened in this country and on the people here. And bringing back these native foods are going to bring up a lot of discussion about how we heal and reconcile that, um, how we learn how to clean up the ecosystem and allow the ecosystem to be predominantly based on local food and medicine, not based on uh, destroying the local food and medicine um, with pollution. So the more that you can get your hands in there and do something in ecology and learn those caretaking practices, the more that you have uh, a leadership role I guess, and so then talk to the park system about um, how medicinal certain plants are. Like, I had an interaction with this guy who said, "Oh yeah, what are you what are you doing?" I was harvesting a chicken in the woods, and he goes, "What what's that?" And I'm like, I put on my dork you know science dork vibes, and I'm like, "Oh, this is Lactuca sulcata. This and this and this. It's also uh, clinically shown as an anti-staphylococcus." Uh, and he was kind of just like, "Oh, that's cool." And then he was like, yeah, I work for, you know, removing invasive plants around. And I was like, oh, do you? And he's like, yeah, we get rid of tons of honeysuckle. And I was like, well, did you know that uh, honeysuckle has also been you know shown in studies to be uh, active against viral infections? And he was like, yeah, it's just honeysuckle. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, it's either honeysuckle locally or... We continue to produce pharmaceuticals that then expire and get put into the waterways and go out into the ocean and cause algae blooms. And then that causes deoxygenation of the planet. And he was like, it's just honeysuckle. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But even by doing that, having that interaction, like, who knows what seed that sets. And it is true that honeysuckle is antiviral and is a lot less environmentally damaging to produce, grow, and uh, discard of than trillions and trillions and trillions of pharmaceuticals with filler of petroleum going into the ocean, causing mass algae blooms, mass oxygen die-off. And so the other option is biomass creates carbon sequestration, and that's what we really need. So even pawpaws in that area um, would help increase biomass, which pulls in carbon, feeds the soil. We need to build soil. If we don't want to die of asphyxiation in a plastic bag, um, it's a race to build soil, and the time is now. And we all have a responsibility with that. And uh, thank you, everybody, who cares. And I just see so many of you, are like our team guy, Warrior, is doing front yard permaculture all over you know that's the kind of stuff we need. The the brother I met yesterday, Cincinnati Plants, he's also doing that. You know, just turn all these yards into gardens. You know, stop with the grass, stop with the chemicals, and employ Gaia to feed us. She's really good at it. She knows how to do it. Um, so eat the weeds. Eat something wild over the day. So green Dean's thing is eat the weeds. He's cool. I learned a lot from his videos. And then Frank Cook's thing um, is eat something wild every day. And just remember that plant pawpaws everywhere and uh, garlic mustard. And hopefully y'all will be in touch anytime. God bless you. Pawpaw blessings.
0: Wow. So much great information there. Thanks again to Dandelion for sharing all of that with us. If you want to connect with him, you can find him on social media as Return to Nature, and I'll have direct links in the show info as well. Definitely connect with him to follow his work, check in on the Paw Paw Project, and to see if he's going to be doing any events in your area in the near future. Those are definitely worth jumping onto if you can. As always, I will be here on the first and third Wednesday of each month with new episodes. You're always welcome to contact me with questions, comments, or topics you'd like me to cover. You can reach me on Instagram at foxandelder, all one word, or also by email foxandelder at gmail.com. I hope you're having a great start to your summer out there, getting lots of goodness out of the garden and harvesting, and just generally making your way through the world with a happy heart. Until next time, keep your hands dirty and your heart open.